Hello, I'm M. And I'm E. And welcome to Blood and Turf, a podcast about transphobic ideologies, such as trans-exclusionary radical feminism and its intersections with fascism, cults, pseudoscience, and other reactionary political phenomena. On this episode of the XX Files, Agent Mulder has been captured by the conspiratorial one-world government aliens and squirreled away to a secret base in the middle of Russia to be force-fed mysterious black goo by axe-faced camp guards. But what does this mysterious black oil contain? Is it alien virus? No. We've been to the darkest reaches of the turf anti-vaxxer Venn diagram crossover and can confirm that it's gender goo and that any minute now the evil doctors will use it to vaccinate your kids. Can Agent Scully save our boy against the horrors of vaccination and gender pills? Or will Mulder be force-femmed as part of an evil plot to uphold the hashtag plandemic? That's right. We're talking about plagues, anti-vaccination conspiracy theories, medicine, and generalised weird biopolitics bullshit. Uh, As ever, there's some notes before we get started. Um, As content warnings, the diseases we cover in this episode are the Black Plague, Syphilis, AIDS, HIV, and uh, COVID-19. And other warnings are for uh, just very horrible ableism, kind of eugenics-level ableism discussions, general evil medical bullshit, evil state bullshit, horrific transphobia, as usual, the Tories, a lot, uh, racism, anti-vax stuff, and anti-Semitism. We also have a retraction to make about our cult episode, um, which I'll let M handle. Okay, so this is a bit embarrassing, and arguably we should have seen this coming, because the guy in question was known to those who pay attention to kind of cult studies to be a little bit of a grifter. But basically, a big chunk of our cult episode is based on talking about this thing called uh, the bite model. And you can go back and listen to the episode if you want to know what that is. The bite model uh, is, a, is a method of like analyzing whether or not an organization is a cult or whether or not there's like cult-like or abusive activity going on in a particular social group. And it was developed by this guy called Stephen Hassan. Stephen Hassan has recently totally covered himself in glory by going on his Twitter account and saying that like detransitioners showed him hypno porn on Pornhub and he's now convinced that Pornhub is using hypno porn to turn to turn your kids trans anyway obviously this is fucking stupid but it does put us in a bit of, a, of an embarrassing position in that this guy who is ostensibly meant to be a reasonably sensible and expert person and who has unfortunately actually contributed quite a lot of positive stuff to the analysis of cults over the years has now turned out to be a fucking moron um, so yeah as far as i'm aware the bite model is actually still considered to be fairly kosher by by cult experts and people who study high demand groups stephen hassan however is not someone who you should consider a reliable source on everything so please take that episode with a pinch of salt with relation to him in particular but as far as I'm aware, and I will keep you updated if I see any developments on this, most of his original theoretical contributions to this kind of stuff back in the 80s and 90s is still considered to be fairly legit. It's just that he's gone idiot brain. As some of you may have seen, when we found this out, we, we posted about it on Twitter, seeking people's kind of contributions, because if you are a trans listener, you will know that this actually happens quite a lot. People don't really remember about J.K. Rowling because she's now gone full, like complete turfoid but quite a few people had a similar reaction when she 
years ago now start doing dog whistles because this was someone who had written a series that they loved as a child or was quite respected uh and yeah the, 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 i mean ra random people just turn out to be turf sometimes and that is not to say like oh it was fine that we accidentally sourced this because as m says the signs of the grift were there but it's 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 wild that it happened to our podcast uh and that we got taken in by it so i'm uh, very sorry about that yeah, my, mildly embarrassing, but not disastrous. I would say I don't I don't know if if Hassan has gone into like the full transphobia zone, or if it was just that they've managed to sucker him because he's he really loves the concepts uh, surrounding like hypnosis and mind control. He clearly has a lot invested in in talking about how they're dangerous. So I think basically they managed to sucker him into thinking there's literally like a hypnosis cult that's being administered to the kids via like drone porn which is wild because if you've ever been on the internet you know that it's not a cult it's just a lot of very horny people <laughs> on to the on to the actual episode so we're going to be covering basically literal and non-literal plagues which uh, as i said earlier does include the wonderful plague that we are living under this year uh, COVID-19, but but also kind of like mind plagues and, and fears of plagues uh, in general. Yeah, so, so, so I guess um, the, the most obvious plague that transphobes specifically are concerned about is is uh, what I've put down in the in the show notes as gender brain plague, uh, and I'm sure you can all like connect the dots on that. It's, you know, it's gay panic particularly applied to applied to children. But um, the reason why we wanted to kind of like talk about anti-vax stuff is as a lot of as a lot of our listeners will have noticed, there's some big overlaps between anti-vaxxers and, and transphobes. And they seem to coalesce yet again around Timmy. It all comes back to Timmy. It's all it all comes back to Timmy. Our best episode. We'll never retract <laughs> anything from that one because we were just making all of it up. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, we were we were visionaries. We were Timmy-based visionaries. But yeah, looking looking at kind of like the gender plague in a in a slightly less Timmy-focused way and more the parent of the Timmy-focused way, you find this kind of general parental fear of like a sick child and, and insecurity around that, which obviously, uh, you know, being trans, being neurodivergent isn't a sickness, but society wants, wants you to believe it is. And so parents will act as if these things are an element of sickness or a plague and have the same insecurities around that. Yeah, so like in, in our society, as much as we got like a cult of the child, and there's, there's, there's the fascistic elements of that, uh, the cult of the child is, is, is also like, you know, interwoven with the cult of the family. And the families, the, re the real families have to, you know, live up to the, the, the cultic ideal of the family in, in the same way that the, the, the real children are always being forced to live up to the, the ideal totem of Timmy. And as a result of this, uh, if there's a, an imperfection in the in the family, people start to freak out, essentially. This whole thing, this whole kind of like insecurity about imperfection has very much been reinforced and built up in, in the political landscape by things like pseudoscience, uh, things like a generalized fear and bigotry against autism, now increasingly uh, fear and prejudice with the relation to transgender children. And uh, specifically, TERFs make the link between being autistic and being trans. Yeah, there is a historical reason for this, of course, particularly our British listeners will be familiar with a lovely guy called Andrew Wakefield. It's not, this isn't all his fault, but a lot of this is his fault. Andrew Wakefield is the guy who perpetrated the MMR vaccine hoax, which was a pseudoscientific fraud. In 1998, the Lancet Medical Journal published a research paper 
authored by this Andrew Wakefield guy and a bunch of other people, which claimed to link the MMR vaccine, that's measles, mumps, and rubella, to autism or autism spectrum disorders in general. It was total dog shit and Wakefield got struck off the, re the medical register, but that took like a decade for, for it all to churn through. So there was like the early, the entirety of the 2010s, there was this generalized undercurrent distrust for vaccines amongst a certain section of like British public life. And this, this flowed into other existing conspiracy theories surrounding like genetically modified organisms, the, the tail end of things like HIV and AIDS paranoia. And there was already just like a pre-existing anti-vaccination fear, which has always been relatively strong in British culture for reasons we'll get to later. So yeah, that had a big effect on the kind of British middle class perception of autistic children. And that has really shaped the, the landscape for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, especially because <clears throat> this hoax implied that being neurodivergent was the result of a vaccine. It very much cemented in the minds of parents and people who would become parents everywhere that, that it was a symptom. You know, it, it, it put, put, put it within this framework of a disease. And so when you look at turf groups today, like Our Duty, which is a very, very, I, I mean, I'm not sure if they are specifically sharing anti-vax rhetoric or whether it's dog whistly, but a lot of their stuff is they've got a syringe with a line through it, like a, a, an anti-sign through it. And they're the group that uh, are pushing the little Timmy kind of agenda with their, their want to raise the age of consent for transition to 25. And obviously, this is right now one of the most kind of important strands of turf rhetoric because of the Kira Bell ruling. They had such success with playing on the fears of parents and, you know, like safeguarders of, of, of children, whether they're clinicians or education workers. This is, this is the strand that they're going to be running with as far as possible for the time being because it's the one they've been the most successful with. Because the cult of the child is extremely powerful, as we've seen. Yeah, so there's there's two things I wanted to bring up about the the cult of the child and this and these fears that that struck into the middle class. Because like one thing that I've just realised is that with relation to the kind of the, the 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 plagues and cures theme of the episode, there's like this plague of insecurity that's running through the middle classes because of well, it's not just the middle classes. Like it was culturally generated in the middle classes, but it pervades all bits of society. Let's not be reductionist like there's, there's this plague of insecurity that's running through the that's running through society with relation to like cultural anxieties uh about the involvement of the parent in the child's life and if a parent realizes or discovers that their child is, is autistic or transgender that will often raise up a whole pile of these insecurities right to the surface so like the panacea to that is quite often conspiracy theory bullshit because it's easier to swallow reactionary pills sometimes it, it's kind of like a the promise of false medicine works both on this like direct level where that's literally the, the narrative but also it is itself a false medicine for the fears of the parent i mean i can speak to a, from a personal perspective on this when i when i came out to my parents which i did actually quite late on in my transition uh, one of them basically begged me not to transition uh and it wasn't because of any specific bigotry in themselves. Oh, I mean, it was, but it, <laughs> it came from this place of fear. They were terrified of me transitioning because, because of this fear, and they just wanted me to be... Some of my family are quite middle class, as you can hear from my voice, but in that very specifically anxious way where you have to do certain things in order to be safe and be happy. And I think this is really, really common, specifically to the middle classes. Although, as you've said... This is kind of permeated everywhere, particularly with the kind of economic 
landscape that we're in now, like post 2008, post decade of austerity in Britain, people's, the middle classes are not as secure as, as they once were, or at least don't feel as secure. And therefore they need their children. They need their children who they do view kind of as possessions as we've covered to be as perfect and normal as possible. And any of this divergence threatens the, the, the parents' view of what the child should be doing. There's, there's one other thing that um, I thought would be worthwhile bringing up to do with like autistic children and transgender children, which we've noted down in the show notes before we move on to the next kind of plague. And that's that because the autistic child and the transgender child aren't kinds of children that fit into the ideal family life in terms of how the, 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 you know, the, the, the cultural fetish of the, of the family is formed, that means that these kinds of children are like politically unknowable to the, to the normal parent. And because it's it, because it's unknowable, it means that that's kind of like a, a blank slate where a lot of things can be written. And in a bigoted society, the stuff that will get written on that slate is inherently prejudicial. There's this sort of like child-shaped abyss, and the like the insecure parent then stares into it. And what stares back out of the abyss is basically Timmy fear, and that's where all of this crap comes from. Yeah, and also you can't con- you can't control a child that you don't that you don't know how to deal with, uh, and a lot of kind of uh, Western. I guess, not to sound wanky, but like, you know, like the Western hegemony of like parents and families, a lot of it is based around control. And that, and that is also yet another fear is like, I can't control this child. They're different. What do I do? And, and the answer will be obviously, as, as Emma said, like very horrible, bigoted things. And so this is also where a lot of the turf kind of stuff around social contagion comes from, whether that's the children in schools or information on the internet and the media. And so it leads into kind of like a, an info plague uh this sort of like permeate this kind of like permeation of like what's seen as this anxiety inducing sickness coming from like every avenue which adds adds to the fear in the in these parents heads yeah so info plague is the second kind of plague we've just covered like gender brain plague uh which obviously crosses over with things like autism and and and, and vaccine terror uh but info plague is also really important uh, because as we know this decade has been the decade of fake news uh, particularly the last five years has been have been a, a time where like the fake news concept has become popularized uh, media institutions are not being viewed as trustworthy basically by anybody like even even the elite components of society don't view them as, as trustworthy otherwise they wouldn't be disciplining the media institutions so much uh, uh, and the things that are symptomatic of this is there's a lot of there's a lot of like resurgence of narratives of like encroaching hordes of rats you know, metaphorical or otherwise, uh, British readers will, British listeners will remember a particularly famous, I think, Daily Mail cartoon, which related to migration, where there were rats running over a border, which is basically a direct lift of a Nazi cartoon. Um, other other encroaching hordes include like benefit scroungers, disabled people, uh, and now trans people in school, in schools who are, you know, again, coming for your kids. So there's, there's complete information toxicity with, with relation to the concept of encroachment. Um, there's also information toxicity with relation to things like, I guess, what you would call red scare stuff, uh, you know, kind of like the the, the anti-Corbyn, anti-Bernie bro stuff in the West. Uh, similar, similar stuff goes on in, in Europe and other Western nations. It's um yeah the the, the 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 social contagion stuff the government has specifically linked um in their kind of educational policy the social contagion of trans stuff because Liz trusts the minister for equalities is basically a turf at this point like she she started off doing dog whistles in July and then she did more 
earlier this month and now she's done basically the same thing as, as Rowling where she's and she's following like loads of turf accounts and, and stuff like that she I, I'm calling it she's a turf but it serves a point in that the, the the social contagion of these trans children is being specifically linked to other progressive causes like like BLM stuff like anti-migrant uh, rhetoric and and anti-capitalism specifically red scare stuff is now part of this educational policy I can't remember the name of it um, but it's where you can't criticize you can't criticize capitalism you can't like criticize the government in schools and the if I remember correctly the policy announcement did specifically mention like race and trans stuff yeah I, I i definitely remember that i can't remember the specific wording but it certainly did um to my mind uh, if you look at this and the the gender brain plague in in conjunction then they're both two axles on the same cart because this stuff is is directed at like overt political campaigning it's it's directed at, at like particular political bits of the landscape, particular political parties, kind of groups, etc. Whereas the gender brain plague is a lot more kind of for like deep-seated psychological worries. So like pink panic is different from red scare, you know what I mean? They, but, but, the, but the reigning, the, the, the reigning uh, authority, in which case, in this case, the Tory government is always going to use all of them because uh, mush-brained turfs are, are brilliant foot soldiers for also onboarding all of the other, all of the other kind of reactionary stuff the Tories want to push through, yeah, which all of, they've all, done. <laughs> all of this stuff kind of like cooperates with itself, you know, because like if you're doing, if you're doing degenerate baiting, you can basically just rope in um, anti-Semitic tropes and you can turn it simultaneously into like an anti-communist thing. And also, like, uh, you know, an anti-AIDS patient thing, for example. The other area that's, that kind of overlaps with fears around the real plague and fears around fears around social contagion is generalized prejudices with relation to blood. So, a lot of COVID-related political rhetoric is essentially a, an echo of seraphobia. So, you get a stop. You get a lot of stuff like governments treating the most vulnerable in a shitty way and not wanting to acknowledge the severity of the disease in certain particular ways that are politically uncomfortable which is sort of it's a lot more difficult to ignore COVID than it is to ignore AIDS but you know the, the classic thing with the, with the Reagan presidency was that they really tried quite hard to ignore its severity for as long as possible because it only well they saw it as only affecting people who are unwantable degenerates you can't do that with COVID because it, it doesn't behave in the same way and it doesn't have that same kind of social character but what they can do is have a, a sort of regressive response, if you see what I mean, uh, in, in that poor people get like much worse care and they, they are much more vulnerable to like severely shitty class war responses, particularly from people like landlords. Uh, we mentioned serophobia. For those who don't know, serophobia is the bigotry against people who are, who are seropositive or perceived to be seropositive. And uh, sero ser being seropositive means uh, having HIV. Just to clarify, in case people didn't know, but yeah, the um, we could probably do an entire episode on the UK's response to COVID. But in general, it's just doing like really stupid shit and hiding the evidence. The government banned Eid with three hours' notice, citing infection control measures, and then with Christmas, up until the moment that everyone had done their Christmas shopping, because again, this is economic. The government assured us that Christmas would absolutely be happening, and not only would it be happening, but we'd also get special uh, relaxations of existing restrictions for Christmas. Now, they've done a U-turn on that, citing this new strain, now that everyone's done their Christmas shopping and spent enough money. But even, you know, the, the two responses, if you compare them, Eid was not even mentioned 
when when the when the government tightened restrictions in areas where a lot of people would be celebrating Eid with again three hours notice, and yet with Christmas we've had weeks of media circus. It's almost like the information environment is is thoroughly played. <laughs> The information environment is just full of like the information environment, right? Is is the Thames, and the Thames is full of rotten corpses, and they're floating down the Thames, and occasionally like a plume of effluvia will erupt from one of them. Oh, what lovely imagery, Em. Oh, it's why you have me on here. <laughs> okay, let's talk about info plague. We've been talking about real plague too much, right? So info plague, uh, as we said earlier, one of the responses has been in the revision of the Department of Education guidelines on extremist material. And also there's been changes to guidelines for BBC staff, which were along fairly similar lines. Um, we've mentioned this before, I think. Uh, one of the chief changes that was quite notable at the time was, I think, basically you can't, if you're, if you're a BBC employee, you can't go to a BLM march in a personal capacity. Or a pride march if they allow trans people. Yeah, if, it, if, it's a, if it's a political pride march, which if it's a proper pride, it, that's what it is, then you can't fucking go or you're fucked. Um, other info plague responses are the continuation of generalized institution-based approaches within, within media institutions and like heightened calls to restrict positive discussion of transgender lives um, and people in scholastic environments. So this is, you know, particularly relates to the, the bell ruling. If, if you've uh, listened to a couple of the public appearances that E has made on the internet in the last week or so, <laughs> that, that the bell ruling has come up quite a lot. E was on what two live streams? Uh, so I was very I was I was I was very uh, glad to be asked to be on a live stream by Thema Sophie, who did a charity live stream for trans healthcare in the wake of the Bell ruling, um, and uh, they had quite a few people on, and it was very very fun environment, uh, kind of like a charity telethon, quite similar to the H Bomber guy stream, which happened last year, again uh, in in service of trans people, and then I did a talk for RS Twenty One, who had a public had a public meeting and recorded it if you want to listen to it i think there's an audio recording coming out soon basically talking about trans the trans healthcare issue attacks on trans people generally and also kind of what to do about it and so in the rs21 thing i did a 10 minute talk basically mostly focusing on on bell and what has happened in the wake of bell the big thing about the bell case is that it, it's very much part of this like battle over control of the concept of i guess veracity like gender veracity yeah it's um i think what was it that i said in in the talk basically i don't know to... i wasn't listening <laughs> thanks em so supportive basically TERFs are really anxious about trans people, essentially, because I, we don't need our gender validated by the state. Um, someone made a point about, about this in regards to J.K. Rowling's essay that the BBC tried to give her a fake made-up prize for, where she, like many other TERFs, makes a throwaway reference to the fact that, you know, oh, if, I, if trans stuff had been around, they would have trans me when I was a kid. And this is something that they commonly, they commonly reference partially to be like, oh, and that's bad, therefore we shouldn't allow trans people to do that. But it's also interesting in the sense that like, if you say that you're clearly so insecure in your own gender that you needed to not have the option to transition to not transition, you needed to be, whether or not, whether or not JK Rowling would have been trans is, is irrelevant. That's kind of the rhetoric they're calling up. And so you, you get this picture of all of these like Prosecco Stormfront people being fucking terrified of trans people because we've just got our own gender thing going on and they're not quite, they're just too insecure about their own gender. Yeah, it's a, strategic, it. it's a strategic challenge in the information environment. Uh, one thing that has 
happened within minutes of this recording starting. Fuck off. What's happened? Okay, it's, it's okay. It's a very small thing. It's about, <laughs> it's about the BBC decision. Uh, it's about the BBC article. So right, this is the problem, listeners. This is why it's so hard for us to get episodes out, because every time we try and record, like seven new stuff, seven new things happen just before we record, just before we write our notes, during recording. It's like the kaiju are coming, coming every two minutes. Right. Okay. Anyway, so this is this is in relation to to the the BBC article giving J.K. Rowling a fake made up prize that a BBC writer made up. So the BBC isn't really meant to do op eds. This was essentially an op ed, dribbling liquid praise all over J.K. Rowling's shoes. So yeah, the, the, someone someone sent in a complaint because it was clearly bullshit and against what the BBC is meant to be, which is <laughs> a neutral institution, as if. And they they have responded saying, "Thank you for getting into touch into touch about our article." Uh, the winners, the 2020 Russell Prize for Best Writing. Amal Rajan repeatedly made clear he was not taking a view on the subject of J.K. Rowling's essay and acknowledged the severity of offence that some people had taken to what she'd written. He did not detract from that when he objectively praised the writing style, her honesty in talking about her own experiences of domestic and sexual abuse, and the bravery required to express a viewpoint knowing it will lead to further online abuse. Thank you again for getting in touch. Kind regards, BBC Complaints Team. You know, drunk driving is really bad because it causes a lot of traffic accidents, but it also helps me get to work on time, so it's impossible to say if it's good, bad or not, right? That's what they've just said in the fucking complaint response. It's a drill tweet. What's quite interesting is that because the BBC has gone absolutely mask off with the transphobia, again, probably because of government pressure, this has happened more and more often. So I've seen people sharing responses to complaints about absolutely heinous things the BBC have done. And they've essentially been like, fuck off, we don't care. The thing about the thing that really got to me about this about this one is is the language where where they where they use the phrase he objectively praised the writing style. What the hell is objective praise? That's not real. Also, I think it's very worth noting, especially as we were speaking on the Department of Education guidelines, essentially targeting black people and trans people as their main targets. The guy who wrote this essay is a massive fan of Enoch Powell. Uh, you know, the fascist. And so the BBC in really defending this this essay about this made up prize is not just saying fuck trans people, but also like maybe Enoch Powell was good actually. Like th this guy I think has like tried to do a TV show on Enoch Powell. He may or may not have been the one who was behind the BBC airing the Rivers of Blood speech in full, which they did a couple of years ago. The B um, BBC stands for blood as in rivers of... Yeah. And, and obviously recently the BBC has been doing a lot of racism of their own thing. And the responses to the complaints about white presenters saying the N-word on air multiple times, which happened this year, were very similar. They were, they were very much like, we don't give a shit, it's fine. Yeah, it all comes back to this control over, control over the information environment, control over the concept of truth, control over legitimate truths. If there's, if there's such a concept as objective, as, as objective praise, which is doing my head in, completely melting my skull um, then lord knows the bbc wants to be the one to determine that objectiveness that objectivity yeah in the same way that, that the turfs want to control the legitimate genders and and the legitimate bodies um and the le le legitimate presentation of gendered bodies the state and other institutions also want to do the same in various ways whether that's you know I don't know, dress codes at the bank or the state, like completely allowing like anti-mask stuff to flourish or state responses against, you know, like hijabs, like everything about bodies, they're all freaked out about. They want to control bodies. They want to control the causes of bodies, all of it. 
Right. So yeah, we move on to the state response to the gender brain plague, which is born out of the the state response to the info plague, which is you know people just saying things the government doesn't like. So most of this response is is all well established stuff, and you're all familiar with it. But the degree to which it's tied into info plague fear now amounts to them essentially just being like, okay, well, I think it's time for it. We've got to ban kids. Yeah, little Timmy is off. Yeah, little Timmy is off to a specific place. Uh, so essentially, the, the, it's got so bad. It's got so bad in our schools, which are essentially now just like the war in Iraq, according to the Daily Mail, that a humanitarian intervention is required. We need to get, we need to get like a sort of Tony Blair for the gender <laughs> war and diffuse the conflict in our schools in case the IRA makes any further inroads in, in turning your kids gay. And any insurgent children will be sent to Kid Gitmo. So yeah, the, the banning of... Ch- I might have taken that one a bit far. The banning no, 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 no. <laughs> the banning of trans children um, has, had, has had some generalised effects on the life of children in schools. And it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of second order effects, like making it more difficult to access healthcare. Uh, generalised, more authoritarian shit is going on in schools. I'm sure that there's going to be some absolutely apocalyptic exclusion scandals over the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, people may or may not be familiar with Prevent because most of our listeners, I assume, will be old enough that Prevent didn't affect them very much while they were in education. But I have heard tales of, of young people who are politically active um, in, in, in very, you know, very normal things like climate uh, activism, being kind of done by prevent like it's already pretty authoritarian in schools but the the, the humanitarian response that M <laughs> referred to has mostly so far taken the place of turf pressure groups f- screaming safeguarding they scream safeguarding when they don't get what they want and they have attacked if i remember correctly grace lavery wrote an essay basically that was didn't hate trans children and for the crime of not hating trans children they, they were brigaded by 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 people calling them a uh, a pedophile and Every time the TERFs want to argue against trans children having any autonomy, or, or children generally, let's be real here, um, they, they call to the safeguarding issue. So in the wake of the Bell ruling, which was about blockers uh, being prescribed to people according to Gillick competency and was about healthcare, a totally unrelated thing, which is education, has been brought in. And so you have the Telegraph writing an article saying that schools would be done, like shopped to Ofsted, for even telling trans children about the possibility of them accessing healthcare, so it's getting it's getting pretty it's getting pr- pretty strong, and this is very much tied into this like response to the horde, as we were saying earlier. Like banning trans children means stemming the tide of kind of like trans children existing in a sense that can't integrate and assimilate and normalize into society society if they can't anywhere like if you don't if you don't if you don't dehumanize children in schools uh you're gonna have a problem because then people will will be around they're human and therefore they will be incorporated into this normal response to protect children so if you don't get rid of the trans children now the response of a normal person to protect children will become a pro-trans response and TERFs absolutely cannot have that yeah because because at that point at that point they're on the back foot in terms of contesting what the information environment is 
and suddenly suddenly Timmy becomes fundamentally wrong to them, at which point their worldview starts just inverting in on itself like a fucking black hole of idiocy. Yeah, it's like it's like a it's like a two brand strategy of general trans extermination. But the the, the 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 getting rid of getting rid of Timmy is like very important because Timmy will grow up. And not only will Timmy grow up, but as studies have shown, like trans children who are supported when they are younger have basically none of the kind of like minority stress responses that are associated with trans people generally. So a lot of the studies that say that like trans people have worse mental health outcomes and worse physical health outcomes and worst economic um, status outcomes are usually based on trans adults who came out as adults and had to deal with the minority stress of that. Whereas children who are supported do not have these same outcomes. So it's like they need to get, they need to get rid of Timmy to stem the tide of trans adults. Uh, and then on the other side of it uh if you get rid of trans children and you deny them healthcare, then they do have to become trans adults when they are adults they will deal with this minority stress and also it's kind of again being trans isn't a fucking disease but it seems like they're going along this logic of, of branding the leper because turfs love to think that they can always tell when someone is trans and they love to mock trans adults for the markers of natal puberty uh, which obviously if you get rid of puberty blockers and, and, and healthcare for trans kids they will also unfortunately have to go through they characterize adult trans people as monstrous or freakish in order to gain this control over veracity that we were speaking of earlier you know a, tra a trans person that has had to go through natal puberty and has dealt with the minority stress of coming out as trans after that whether or not you want to associate concepts of passing into it at the end of the day they're going to have a harder time of, of life um, sometimes and they're going to be easier to politically maneuver against so if you can't get rid of trans people while they're children you need them to be as weak as possible as adults uh, so that you can get rid of them as adults and it's and it's a bonus to the turfs if fear forces them to detransition or if um you know societal transphobia ends up killing them off in in a social murder capacity because that supports the turfs rhetoric yeah i mean tur turfs notably absolutely love detransition de stuff they they fully adore it it's great it's great for them it's another it's an interesting it's another interesting similarity between the generalized transphobic movement and the anti-abortion movement that um you know the anti-abortion movement one of the one of the big spectacles they love is when they when they can kind of trot out someone who has had an abortion and can you know tell a very emotive story about how much they regret it and then how they found jesus and they're praying for their dead child and so on yeah, and, and, and this is very interesting, their obsession with detransitioners. Uh, Kira Bell was a detransitioner, and her argument was that she shouldn't have been able to transition, despite the fact that her, her transition had nothing to do with Gillick competency anyway. But the majority of detransitioners actually transition later. It's like the majority of detransitioners who do exist basically detransition tactically out of this same fear yeah. so the turfs want to create this fear to create detransitioners and then brainwash the detransitioners they do create into thinking that they didn't detransition tactically and they did it because they found jesus etc you know what you know what it's almost like it's like in their attempt to control the perfect uh, ideal household they realize that it's essential that they control the door to the closet oh yeah yeah exactly yeah just um, up with that one you can take that one home with you <laughs> By, by going after trans children and mischaracterizing it as the safeguarding thing, uh, like I said, it, it allows them to kind of um, accuse accuse uh, anyone who's pro-trans of being a paedophile. But it also means that they can e really easily tap into these same kind of like seraphobic, homophobic narratives of contagion and vampirism and basically just copy Section 28 wholesale. And, and they've got their political rhetoric done for free. Like it's, it's Anita Bryant, who people may or may not rem remember. And if you don't remember her, 
Google her, but there's no gay liberation to counter her this time. It also taps into the kind of other general reactionary things like anti-disability stuff, uh, anti-migrant overlaps and stuff like that. So because of this massive crossover between anti-vax stuff and TERF stuff, you, you see prominent TERFs like Venice Allen kind of mixing all of these reactionary uh, tendencies together. So a lot of TERFs have gone anti-vax, which we've spoken about in previous episodes. And they also respond to anti-vax in the same safeguarding of little Timmy way. So at the moment, they're kicking off about how the government has decided not to give uh, schools any resources for uh, uh, testing, uh, for COVID testing. And they're all freaking out about the fact that children shouldn't have to wear masks. Uh, and also the fact that children shouldn't be tested by volunteers because there's this lack of safeguarding. Because... Um, in, in an effort to, to shrug off the responsibility, the government has said that these volunteers can come from anywhere and therefore will not need DBS checks, which are usually required if you need to work with children in any capacity whatsoever. Uh, they're also anti-COVID generally, like they don't like the test generally, but they, they're legitimizing this kind of anti-vax sentiment by making these calls to safeguarding. Yeah, so one thing that this this really reminds me of is when when the pandemic was kind of just kicking into gear in the UK back in March and April, and there was this huge explosion of mutual aid groups on a community level, particularly kind of like not particularly heavily politicized version of mutual aid, but it definitely had a political role. The one that was in my local area was one led by the local Labour Party kind of constituency Labour Party groups. So it was it was a little it was pretty kind of uh, lower middle class NIMBY-ish Little England type stuff going on wasn't too reactionary but one thing I did notice happening early on and which I really tried to push back against at the time when we were having these organizational discussions in the mutual aid group was the concept of GDPR and DBS checks and all of that kind of thing. If you're involved in you know radical activist mutual aid stuff you will know that the, the very the very idea of, of having a system where you would even require something that GDPR be relevant to is completely alien. Like you might conceivably have a spreadsheet of, of, of phone numbers who you call up, but you're not going to have any kind of like sophisticated database. Um, but the, these uh, quite a lot of the mutual aid groups that went in a sort of institutiony NGO-ish type direction, but never quite got there, uh, ended up with these internal debates over, oh, are we doing correct safeguarding for these people who are going to be delivering house like household supplies to? during the pandemic, have we, have we done our GDPR due diligence? Now, there are certain activist contexts in which that is important. For like my union stuff, I have had to sign GDPR forms because like I, I hold a specific position and that's fine. That's, that's a good exercise of responsibility and, and you know, due diligence does have its place. But with relation to the mutual aid groups, it was, it was, in my opinion, completely redundant. And it also spoke to these generalized, kind of like amorphous, not very well thought through fears that exist in like the British kind of like mindset on a sort of sub-political level. And they often get voiced in this language around like safeguarding, which means that as soon as any of this stuff comes up, if you can bring up safeguarding, you can essentially use that as a political angle. And in the context of the of the mutual aid groups, it was essentially, it wasn't totally pointless. And I understand why people were yelling about safeguarding as part of as part of this kind of like community mutual aid response to the pandemic. It did have a de-radicalizing effect because there was a lot of rhetoric of like, oh, and I, I heard this personally in calls. I don't want criminals in our mutual aid group. 
what if we have someone with a criminal record? Yeah, it's very notable that the mutual aid response in the UK, um, the early responses were almost entirely very leftist and very kind of anarchist responses. And and several of the mutual aid groups sprang out of, you know, literal like squatters crews and things like that. And there was this other side that you speak to, which was done along labor, um, like councillor boundaries is how they, is how they organized it. And you did see this same like, reactionary stuff around like i don't want criminals i don't want like the wrong sort this very professionalized sort of response as i actually mentioned in my talk with rs21 this is understandable in the sense that the left has kind of been attacked by a thousand cuts for years and is in retreat and so the only vaguely leftist groups that are around are either tiny or have assimilated this weird professionalized NGO charity status. But it's also worth noting that of the effective mutual aid groups I know that are still around, it's the it's the one it's the ones run by squat crews. It's not the ones who spent weeks arguing about GPDR. Yeah, this all of this stuff kind of kind of overlaps with anti-migrant fears in, in society, which again comes back into this horde contagion response. So like migrant solidarity in the UK has completely collapsed being realistic. Like there, there are activist groups who do good stuff, but on, on the wide strategic level, it's, it's fallen through the floor. Yeah, and it's only really legalistic challenges now that, that, that get anywhere. You do get, you do get sporadic mutual aid efforts. Like I've done some stuff myself and I know of a couple of groups that have done it, but it, it's, it's tiny. It's skeleton crew at best. To a certain extent, the, 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 the psychological aspect of political backing for migrant solidarity hasn't existed in the UK for several decades, really. The UK landscape is fundamentally highly migrant hostile, literal hostile environment. Uh, and as a result, there's barely been any need for the right wing to bother building any more bridges between different groups of like prejudicial opinion holders. They're all already kind of like pre-packaged together. The ready meal has already been cooked for the far right. Um, so because of this, like plague related migrant fears are just part of the deal. They're just part of like the, the, the general political landscape in the UK. And so existing prejudices against like, for example, like Asian migrants are in relation to hygiene, which we saw at the beginning of the, of the pandemic with all of this kind of like Western scaremongering about wet markets, which are just farmers markets, uh, like or particularly like hygiene related food, uh, fears around food and SARS kind of just dovetailed immediately into existing Orientalist tropes. And that meant that there was, you know, just this kind of, racist layer of topsoil in which like new flowers could be grown new beautiful flowers of racism yeah i mean like the early sensationalist media hype around <clears throat> residents in china being you know videos of them being taken away by the police for for the crime of having covid played on like this weird imagined fear of like east asian conformity and also led into the uk's kind of like weird jingoism mixing in with anti-vax sentiment like oh i'd never let the government tell me what to do i'm not going to wear a mask you know that was always going to happen because we live in a hell country the disability response is interesting in that like the government were always going to be terrible to disabled people, but specifically people with health conditions in a epidemic which affects your health was always, again, going to be like extremely evil. So you, on the one hand, have all of these like bazaars being like, I'm not going to wear a mask, I'm going to do what I want. And then the government, meanwhile, are abandoning shielders. When we found that we'd get hold of the vaccine, the list that was um, uh, published doesn't prioritise um, immunocompromised people or disabled people at all. Like they've changed the list several times, but the original uh, publication was essentially care home workers would be number one, 
the original list didn't even include other healthcare workers and then it was just done by age they've got they've they, they've got clinically vulnerable people on like number seven on the list uh, and and then after that there's several more age bands and then it's just the rest of the country and of course during the early pandemic the government did literally decimate the care resident population 10 percent of all care residents were killed by by the government's um incompetence and cruelty and they just abandoned shielding immediately after the first lockdown right so there's this there's this combination where like the mass is abandoned but the horde is defended against basically right like the mass yeah. like the mass the mass is um you can protect the masses against like the barbarians at the gates but you 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 absolutely mustn't protect them against anything that's real because that might cost you some money um it's it it does a, like an interesting way in which this is reflected i feel is like the far right has deprioritized talking about border stuff during the entirety of the lockdown and they started talking about anti uh like anti-lockdown stuff anti-vax rhetoric like populist complaints about restrictions upon freedoms um which was essentially like a, a maneuver and like once those once you know things begin to approach a vague sense of normality in you know maybe about a year's time i suspect that like border related rhetoric will have been so heavily dovetailed into plague related far-right rhetoric that it'll it'll just become as one and all the all like the care workers and the genuinely vulnerable components of society will not get anything at all obviously but what will get the anti-plague rhetoric treatment is like essentially the border cops. I mean, you've seen this already um, globally. You've, you've gotten to the point where leftists have essentially advocated for closing borders in countries to stop COVID, um, which is... Not theoretically 100% solid. <laughs> yeah, not, not the best. And also you've seen how much they've abandoned um, kind of like the, the usual anti-migrant rhetoric because the government has uh, basically criminalized being homeless uh, in its hostile environment because they've, uh, they've, they've, they've said that now their policy is that rough sleeping is grounds for deportation for any migrant, regardless of their legal status. So if you, if you rough sleep for one night, it doesn't matter if you have permanent residency, you will de be deported. Now, right. if, so it's, if like the a, it's like a return to the poor laws of like the 1900s, except instead of going to the, like the, the, the poor house and the workhouse, the workhouse is another nation, which is a very, a very poignant concept when you consider the role of Britain within global imperialism. <laughs> Yeah, and, and also, like, it, it, you, you have to believe that it's linked to the fact that earlier on in the pandemic, um, the government were forced to provide for homeless people and prove that they could do it all along. And they're so afraid of having to do that and people going, hey, wait a minute, we remembered that you were able to give everyone housing. Why don't you do that all of the time? That they're just trying to get rid of all of the people with no fixed abode or, or, or sleeping rough. But it, it also shows that the right wing priorities have changed because if they were on the ball, I mean, I don't want to give my ideas, but if they were on the ball about this stuff, criminalizing, um, criminalizing any group of people is pretty long, pretty far along in the um, kind of like fascism scale. And so if I were a budding fascist and my state had uh, legitimized my, my fascism, I would be shopping people for, for, for doing this. But the fact that they're not bothering to do this shows that they're kind of, they've completely moved on at least for the moment. And yeah, I mean, also, also the far right has really not got much of a brain in this country at the minute. Like, you yeah. know, I, there is, there is a tendency amongst the, amongst like far, amongst like leftists to, to call the far right stupid. The far right is not like inherently stupid. You can get properly strategically intelligent fascists. 
it's just that for the last few years the far right scene in britain has not really been there they don't need to be there uh you know they kind of they won with brexit and they won with ukip weird we're getting a sort of state-sponsored far right i'm not entirely sure how to phrase that what that might be <laughs> should we talk about anti-semitism now <laughs> yay uh <laughs> So yeah, um, the the government's the government's plague response is 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 blending in all, all of these like anti horde kind of concepts that relate to fascism, and there's different ways in which those intersect, which moves us on to how anti semitism can cross over with plague fear and and political narratives with relation to blood. This is quite important because, as we've alluded to many times, anti semitism has a lot of crossovers with transphobia. Uh, one of these days, I promise we will do a really well-researched anti-Semitism episode. Um, this is another area in which we're going to kind of like touch lightly on the topic for a few minutes. Uh, so yeah, we're not there yet. We'll get there, listeners. Um, let's talk about leprosy. Leprosy has always had, le- responses to leprosy throughout our history has, have, or, have always had anti-Semitism baked into them. In our show notes, we will share several articles which we found that offer historical perspectives on this, uh, one of which is a JTA article uh, that delves into the fact that epidemics generally often are accompanied by a rise in anti-Semitic rhetoric and action. Yeah, this article is absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it will be will be the kinds of things that you will probably be familiar with if you research anti-Semitism and and and, and fascism and the narratives uh, of fascism. There's a particularly interesting bit in the article where. The author has screen capped a flowchart showing how coronavirus affects the New York Jewish institutions. The flowchart is from the Daily Mail. It's absolutely astonishing. Basically, it's like it's like a a depiction of like a New York uh, city skyline backdrop that then fades into a coronavirus, and then there's all these kind of like red cards that have like black silhouettes of people's heads. And they're all labeled things like Manhattan lawyer 50, uh, and then family of five, and then Yeshiva University, and all of this kind of stuff. And then like young Israel of New Rochelle, Westchester, New York, et cetera, et cetera. All of this kind of stuff is linked together in this kind of like nefarious flowchart of like disease vectors. And suspiciously, all of these disease vectors have a connection to Jewishness. And several of them are just Jewish people. This is, you know, this is this is the modern take on Jews as the as the vector of disease transmission. Um, but that's a very long-standing anti-Semitic narrative. Uh, the the big one for uh, Western anti-Semitism is the Black Plague, and prior to that, the big one was leprosy. So, as the article goes into, there is a lot of widely well. They were widely held when the Black Plague was a thing, but there were there were a lot of widely pl- held beliefs around uh, the role of Jews in spreading in spreading the Black Plague. Essentially, there were fears that kind of went around that the Jews were dodging the plague somehow. So there were Jewish quarters to quite a lot of medieval towns at the, during the 14th century, which was when the Black Plague was really rolling in like the late 14 in like the late 1380s and the early 1350s. Jewish quarters often kind of really kept themselves and there were there were lots of kind of like social fears around them that there was this kind of like community within the community that was you know, perhaps something weird about them and they were plotting against all of these good like Christian peasants. That was the conception anyway. In reality, the Jews tended to suffer more from plagues. Um, the article claims that, uh, and I'll quote, if anything, Jews tended to suffer from plagues at a greater rate than the population at large, 
partially because they were far more urbanized than the wider peasantry. Plague is a part of what some scholars call the, quote, urban health penalty, and had a much higher level of contact with potentially infected individuals. In many cities, they lived in extremely cramped quarters, hemmed in by residency restrictions, often with limited sources of barely potable water. Those residency restrictions that the author has mentioned, by the way, those will, those will quite often have been specifically religiously inclined ones, like ones that were imposed upon the Jews to create specific Jewish quarters. Regardless, um, the, the article continues, that hardly stopped anyone from blaming the Jews for the Black Death, notorious for its fatality rate reaching, uh, approaching 50% of the infected. On the contrary, unhinged conspiracy theories circulated widely, building on centuries-old charges that Jews were poisoning wells out of a deep-seated misanthropy. The intellectual roots of the slander of poisoning stretch back centuries, given the Jews' unusually prominent role as medical professionals, a risky business, especially whenever one's patient expired. As late as 1610, the medical school in Vienna had no compunction making the bizarre assertion that Jewish law required physicians to poison one patient in 10. The heroic Jew Jewish historian Toshua Trachtenberg, heroic because he published a stunning work on the history of anti-Semitism in 1943, identified the trope of Jewish doctor, sorcerer, poisoner in several works of early modern literature, including this bit of dark dialogue from John Malston's Malcontent, written in 1604. This is a play, by the way. Uh, Mendoza says, canst thou in poison, canst thou in poison? And Malvol says, explicitly, no Jew, apothecary, or politician better. So yeah, this, this, all this stuff is like, it also ties into the nefarious doctor, doesn't it? The nefarious doctor who's giving you bad medicine. Almost like the nefarious doctor might give you a poisoned vaccine. Weird. It all comes back. It's all the same anxieties. It, it, is all, it is all the same anxieties. There's the anxiety around intellectuals, which blends into the anxiety around doctors. Both of these things blend into anxiety around Jews. They blend into anxieties around vaccines. Ugh. It's bad. It's bad. So yeah, leprosy. We were going to talk about, le about leprosy. So um, leprosy is actually not quite one specific disease. It can it historically refer to a wide range of skin diseases, um, some of which were transmittable and some of which weren't. Lepers were often herded into enclosed space in, in you know, medieval and classical life, you know, le le literal leper colonies. The article mentions a lot of this stuff, and it says, already in the 1320s, lepers were apprehended for suspected well poisoning. And after a judicious application of torture, quote, confessions were provided. Complete and detailed recipes of poisons were listed, including such rare toxins as human blood and urine, spiders, snakes' heads, toads' legs, women's hair, and of course, communion wafers pilfered from the church. Right, this is a classic anti-Semitism thing, right? There's a long-standing blood, blood libel narrative that states that communion wafers were being stolen from Catholic churches by Jews and then mixed with human blood for some kind of like mysterious Jewish ritual. Obviously, this is bollocks. Nazis, however, loved this stuff. Um, it's been a classic staple of European anti-Semitism for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's one of the main pillars of blood libel. You will note that this stuff in the in, uh, that has just been noted in the article, these detailed recipes that include human blood, also has a crossover with the QAnon narrative about adrenochrome being extracted from human children and being put into a mysterious drug, which then the elites consume and it gives them more power. Anyway, yeah, lots of lots of torture going on back in the 13, 1340s and 1350s with relation to to Jews being blamed for the Black Death. In reality, the Black Death was caused by poor urban hygiene, 
um, the contagion being highly transmittable anyway, the fact that it can be transmitted in a number of ways, particularly via fleas, which were transferred on rats, all of this kind of stuff. Truth seldom matches up to the conspiracy theory, especially the anti-Semitic one. Similarly, leprosy, what was called leprosy in, in medieval times was a variety of diseases, but, what, but leprosy, the disease that we have identified now in modernity, is, um, <clears throat> if I remember correctly, a fungal infection which can take months to years to transmit, similar to warts, you know, and, and, and other skin infections like that. So both of these things, both rat transmission and fungal transmission, are always going to be things that seem scary and unknown. Uh, and even with modern science, we've had this with COVID, um, you know, because we can't see respiratory droplets. Uh, we can't see airborne uh, pathogens. And so we seem to have immediately turned to all of these racist, anti-Semitic, um, just generally bigoted uh, reactions in, in the face of this uh, confusion and fear. So actually, uh, just to correct, um, leprosy is actually a bacterium. Oh, bacterium. That's it. But it is very slow. It's very slow to transmit. It's very slow to transmit. In fact, I was when I was just double checking that now, I went onto the Wikipedia page and it like in some cases, uh, leprosy can take 20 years to surface. So yeah, perhaps if you are a fascist listening to the listening to the podcast, you're terrified of the Jews giving you leprosy. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about that anytime soon. Global warming will kill you faster, pal. <laughs> <laughs> But in relation to kind of uh, reactionism in the face of fear, which humans, especially the British, seem to love doing, again, this does tie into HIV, AIDS, and the panic around it, and, and, and how that reflects on modern COVID panic as well. I mean, most listeners probably weren't alive at the time, but people may remember Princess Diana. One of the reasons that she became a bit of a gay icon uh, is that during the height of HIV panic, she made a big deal out of a press conference where she spoke to, shook the hands of, and touched seropositive people. Because she kissed, at this, she, she kissed a child. That was the really famous one. Like she yes. kissed a child in a hospital bed. Yes, and at this point, similarly to kind of like the fears of leprosy and, and the Black Plague, for some reason, everyone was convinced that you could get HIV from, from mere skin contact. Um, the most famous one being toilet seats. Your parents may or may not, um, depending on when they were alive and who they, who, <laughs> when they were born and who they socialized with in the 80s and 90s, may have a fear of public toilets. That comes from HIV uh, phobia, uh, uh, serophobia. One thing that I think is notable about like HIV panic is that there was, particularly after the Reagan administration of fucked off, mainstream culture went into like turbo fear mode. Like Oprah Winfrey predicted that a fifth of the population would be dead by 1990, which is just fucking mad. <laughs> like Specifically the heterosexual population. The fear yeah, around I mean, HIV was that it would infect people who weren't gay because they didn't care about gays. This is very similar to early COVID responses in the sense that before people took it seriously as a global epidemic, when they thought it was confined to areas in China, people were not bothered. I remember reading about uh, things very early on in February and being extremely concerned and the people around me in my workplace not caring at all. Half of them didn't think that COVID was real and half of them didn't think it would end up being global. Uh, and, and, and the fear came when it affected, the, when, when, people, when people's empathy kicked in, essentially. They didn't have empathy for the Chinese. People didn't have empathy for the New York gays. But as soon as they think they're going to be affected, that's when this stuff starts turning. Yeah, fear of the, of the horrible Eastern race and its bad habits, 
uh, kind of like tied into a general hostile feeling towards this Asian economic colossus, which controls all the imports. So there was just generalized racism. Like Trump was yelling a lot about like the China virus. Trump delights in yelling about China. So all of all of this stuff, we were inoculated against actually inoculating ourselves. God, fucking sucks. Uh, so yeah, we were inoculated against against protecting ourselves. Nevertheless. There were various different attempts to protect protect ourselves and protect our kids, like there was the Timmy fear that we've mentioned earlier. It coalesced out of all of these concerns, like the concerns around protecting the ideal family in suburbia, protecting against the ravenous horde of like Marxists, migrants, and Jews. Uh, like you had to protect them against trans people, um, kids that like look at you weird or call you a dick online if you're like a blue tick Twitter person. Uh, all of these, all of these like social reactionary responses have been a combination of everything we've just talked about over the, over the entirety of the episode so far. Uh, In our notes, uh, we've written a bit <laughs> that says pro-COVID anti-trans energy, which I think sums it up perfectly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People are afraid of plague as like a breakdown of order, and that that applies to like you know genuine genuine plague and you know these these more conceptual fear plagues. Uh, but also, also the breakdown of water fear applies to like more genuine like material senses, which relate to the the economic breakdown, like the absolutely cataclysmic recession that's going on. And as a result of this, as a result of this generalized political terror, po- politicians have had serious moments of policy paralysis and indecision. And because they because because of this, faith in political establishments is is completely dissolving. Which means that the only way in which they can shore up credibility is by just kicking the shit out of marginalized people. So with the result with uh, as a result of that coming up, we now move on to what the responses to plagues are. We've we spent a lot of time um, like describing them and describing how the government has fucked up and how fascism is is it, inventing and also rebooting all of the all of these fun angles now we should talk about the the response to plagues and the the concerns that arise around medicine yeah let's cure this plague the big one's anti-lockdown stuff let's start there yeah so basically regardless of how well it was applied it wasn't well applied regardless (laughs) of whether it was necessary what i was sorry uncontrollable laughing go on it wasn't wasn't well applied was it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no it was not well applied i'm sitting here in a tearful area i'm loving the fact that infections are going up and i can't leave my house it's a great time just to clarify we are pro lockdown when it's done properly just hasn't hasn't been done good has it um and this causes problems because lockdown makes everyone extremely bored even if you are the mythical well furloughed worker you've got lovely little home office uh you're economically fine because your boss cares about you for some reason like Capitalist work culture has absolutely cooked all of our brains. And especially if you are this career professional, not used to precarity or routine uncertainty. Routine uncertainty. So like lockdown has just pulled the trousers off the British lower middle classes because even if you are financially secured by furlough, by furlough, you're psychologically unemployed. You lose your structure, you lose your validation and you, and you lose your social network because if you are kind of one of these workers, you tend to have your life tied up in your work. Right. So a good example of this on, on, a, on a direct individual level is actually me, because, <laughs> because I was comfortably furloughed because I have a quite a good relationship with my boss. But unfortunately, I went so insane over lockdown that I started a podcast. <laughs> 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 okay, yeah. So, so moving, <laughs> moving on, we're now, we're now in, the, in, in the stage of plague lockdown that 
it's it's getting into winter it's no longer the good summer months so we're into like countrywide seasonal affective disorder which is also making it worse we've got the winter flu crisis all of these things are now kicking in as nice little political motivators which are just turning turning winter britain into a total shit show um you know like most people don't have the luxury of space outdoor or in particularly if you're in like the dense urban environments of of southern and midland england um and the lockdown rules that were imposed over summer meant that the normal time when when british people kind of like get out and have all of their like shit barbecues and fuck around in the park or whatever just basically didn't happen um or if they did the cops would would come and break it up yeah yeah but pretty much like the only the only fun that i got to have over summer was was like running around in the, in the black lives matter protests watching watching like guys with absolutely colossal muscles completely obliterating the english defense league which was cool but it only happened like two times <laughs> so so yeah yeah my, my my social highlight was handing out pp to protesters and it was a highlight but oh, it was great usually was you'd fun. have more in a summer <laughs> our brains were already cooked because we actually find protests vaguely fun which is a deep sign of a, a very specific form of brain worm which we won't go into anyway yeah the lockdown rules imposed over summer meant that most people had a fairly shit summer when they couldn't do anything and they didn't see their friends they weren't able to go and like have like fucking pims in the park as a result there's a psychopolitical hangover in relation to access to public spaces and this has completely smashed into existing right-wing narratives regarding controlling civic spaces. So the, the, the BLM protest is a great example of this because there was all that bullshit over statues. That's a, like statues are really big in British civic spaces and British civic life. So yeah, control over them. That was a big area of contest. Uh, you know, th there's recently been arrests of the people who chucked that statue into the river in, was it Bristol? Bristol. Yeah, Bristol. Uh, other areas of, of civic contest that we've mentioned that we've mentioned before in this podcast are schools, border control stuff. Uh, all of this stuff has met in this same kind of like narrative boiling pot as the full blown lockdown paranoia over controlling access to parks and the street that has meant that the far right has just gone on a gone on a lockdown spree and they're all just becoming complete complete motherfuckers. Um, What's What's interesting to know about the control over uh, public spaces is that there were miniature riots in London in the summer specifically because, as I mentioned earlier, the police would just crack down on any outdoor socialising in the summer, specifically if you were brown or came from a council estate. So they, were, they, they, they had loads of police out in South London uh, to stop illegal parties. Yeah, um, almost like the illegal party is a sort of like flash in the pan version of the horde suddenly jumping into public life. Yeah, because you would have, you would have, there were, the, I mean, at the same time, there was like a massive, like extremely like culturally white gathering of something or other in, in like maybe Hampstead Heath or a fancy, a fancy park like Kensington that was absolutely fine. And then in Peckham, you had like riot vans going over because people were sitting outside, drinking outside, which again, scientifically is, is far less risky than someone eating out to help out. But of course, it's, it's all about this, you know, control uh, and order and societal order, which the government has been has really has really lent on the cultural aspect of it because yeah. usually they can economically control order and they can't right now the structure is gone because of the pandemic
other ways in which lockdown has uh, completely tinfoiled everyone's cerebral cortex, uh, middle classes have had to put up with their kids a lot because they haven't been going to school, they haven't been going on holiday. Unfortunately, as we've discussed many, many times on the podcast, as part of our generalised anti-middle class racism, middle class parents hate their kids. So this means that they had to put up with them a lot more. And as a result, that has really driven the, oh, get them back to school stuff which has been another pillar of reactionary responses to COVID and reactionary responses to lockdown. Um, yeah, thanks, Keith Stormer. Fucking hell. God. When, when, will, I... when will there be a, a, a return to propaganda of the deed? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, before you, you can Google that, we, we shall now talk about um, generalised fascist anti-logic. Yeah, so TERF specifically, um, one of the reasons they've been so su successful lately and one of the reasons their, their, their rhetoric has really tightened up and cohered has been because of the direction and funding from Christian evangelical far-right groups in the US. And so a lot of their concerns and a lot of the general far-right concerns are being infected with this specifically, ha, infected, pardon the pun, uh, this kind of Trumpish evangelical Republican rhetoric, even though we're in the UK and it doesn't apply technically. Right. And the, the reason why this is fun is that the, the even like the religious right in the US has been a major driving force for the US component of anti-lockdown stuff. A lot of the, the anti-lockdown rhetoric comes from the same bits of the far right that are hyper-religious. And the, the other area in which there's this like fun political flourish is with relation to top-level uh, Republican politicians in, who like hold roles of state who would normally be like deeply anti-stem cell research they suddenly come into contact with COVID anxieties and they realize, oh, okay, I need the good drugs. Trump is the classic example of this when he got COVID and he got the, the drugs, which according to all the conspiracy theories are made of liquidized babies. Um, what, what is actually the case is that part of the uh, research process for producing some of the various different kinds of anti-COVID drugs includes stem cell research. Um, so yeah, no liquidized kids. Don't worry about it. What's next in the in the lockdown anxiety uh, boogaloo? I guess it's residual threat of austerity. No one's got jobs. And everyone's bored. People are scared and angry, and they're disillusioned with politics. So they're eating their own brains. That's another one. Yeah, I mean, we had the we had a decade of austerity. Rishi Sunak is now threatening more austerity. People are understandably extremely freaked out because there's not much to do austerity on. You know, no one's got jobs. Do you remember? Do you remember that bit when they when they did like the whole like Mad Max Fury Road thing? They were like, "Yeah, don't get addicted to furlough." That was good. Yeah, don't don't, don't get addicted to furlough. Um, you only exist to furnish the pockets of landlords, and if you're a landlord, everything's fine. I mean, Britain is a country of landlords, and COVID has shown this. Yeah. Rishi Sunak recently made uh made comments with relation to the fact that there is like a public duty to go on a spending spree as soon as spring hits, which is again fucking stupid and coming from the chancellor economically illiterate but you know what else would we expect uh, i mean that's what happened with christmas it's now looking like they specifically lied about christmas to get people spending a bunch of christmas money gosh who would have predicted that further areas of lockdown related anxiety uh include the generalized fear of modernity which we've referred to many times due to it being mentioned in the umberto eco essay uh you know that good old 5g corona uh the 5g towers developed by the chinese are going to give you coronavirus. Uh, masks made by the Chinese are going to give you coronavirus. <laughs> Blood oxygen. Oxygen is breathed by the Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> 
the blood oxygen will be reduced because of the 5G corona that's going through your mask. It's all and something, 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 um, suburban terror to do with uh, yellow peril over the horizon that's taking your kid. I don't fucking know. Like, I don't know what I'm reading. <laughs> There's a generalized fear of like modern institutions and changing modern life that is that is coloring all of these, all of these kind of psychopolitical bullshit twitching stuff. You also have issues around the NHS, obviously, because we need the NHS because we have a pandemic and they're, and they're a health service and the pandemic is a health issue. But this links back in again to transphobia in the sense that the British love to fight over scraps. They love to congratulate the Tories for taking away most of the cake and then kill each other over the crumbs. Yeah, um, a big, and a big, a big political uh, thing in, in the UK that kind of explains how our culture works is that essentially... Um, the way that political activism works in the UK is that the, the ruling class have managed to figure out how to gamify um, the peasants fighting over the bits of rotten turnip that are chucked out of the back of the coach. Yeah, and, and, and this, I think, actually goes a long way to explaining why there's been a, such a ramping up of transphobia. So... Um, because uh, at the end of the day, like, again, being trans is not a disability, but we cause the same problems um, for random bigots as a lot of disabled people in the sense that we demand um, complex long-term care, um, specifically healthcare, and the Tories want the NHS sold off for scrap. So we almost get to the point where trans people are sort of type described as like gender migrants nicking your healthcare. It's very similar to the rhetoric of the hostile environment, um, scaremongering about migrants stealing the NHS from the good English taxpayer. And this is used to justify the gatekeeping around trans healthcare and the long wait times. But also to be fair, like long wait times in the NHS are not confined to trans healthcare. They are, I, I think at the moment, one of the most egregious to the point where pretty much every British trans person relies on private healthcare entirely for their trans healthcare needs. But you know, uh, I know people who have congenital heart defects and require operations to live uh, who have been waiting for their operations for years. I would never want to pretend that trans people are the only ones being fucked over by the NHS being destroyed. And so therefore the average person will have these anxieties around the NHS being um, destroyed, whether or not they actually give a shit about, you know, stopping it being destroyed. They're still worried about it being destroyed anyway. And so especially during a pandemic when, 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 healthcare resources are spread thin people are going to worry about these things and they're going to want to get rid of the other people in line for healthcare yeah i mean i think one of the really big ones on a societal level is going to be like uh, heart related stuff and cancer related stuff like i know a few people who've really been completely fucked over by cancer treatments being heavily delayed by the the, the backlog of stuff that's been caused by the by, by the necessity to kind of ramp up the coronavirus response which has pulled resources away from other places um, well you say you say necessity but things like the nightingale hospitals were completely pointless okay yeah that's a good point i mean the nightingale hospitals were completely pointless um like i had someone who was in one and like they were fully potemkin villages could you explain that for the listeners please oh, yeah of course uh, a potemkin village so this is a historical reference to a russian politician called potemkin pre-soviet pre pre-soviet this is during the the um, I think the reign of Catherine the Great. Yeah, Catherine the Great. I've just looked it up. It's basically a fake village, like an entirely fake village. This guy, Potemkin, was a significant politician during the reign of Catherine the Great, and also her ex, and he wanted to impress her. 
so he built a whole bunch of like fake villages for when she was doing a royal tour of Crimea. Yeah, it's just a phrase that means a a state project that is entirely fake and is entirely there for the appearance of actual material changes. Anyway, one area of anxiety that is really the crux of this podcast that we should now have a little talk about is vaccines. Anti-vax stuff is huge in the UK, as we mentioned earlier, uh, and a lot of it relates to good old ex-Dr. Wakefield. But Andrew Wakefield did not invent the anti-vax movement overnight. Um, There is a long history of anti-vax stuff in the UK and you know as we've mentioned it has a lot of draw with uh, like people who are parents people who are worried about kids um, and it has a lot of overlaps with other areas of medical pseudoscience such as homeopathy thanks for that one Prince Charles it's Prince Charles's fault that homeopathy was on the NHS for years anyway and the Andrew Wakefield uh, MMR vaccine autism scare overlapped in British politics with fears of GMO stuff and like 1990s liberal crank versions of green politics. A lot of the Green Party is heavily crank. That like it just is, and you all know it. <laughs> Britain actually, um, you know, we we are the place where where like modern vaccines as a as a properly solid medical concept were invented with smallpox vaccination famously you know particularly if you've read horrible histories you'll know that it was done via like um essentially using cowpox as as the as the source of the vaccine which is a a similar i think is it's a bacterium related to smallpox but is less lethal and could be used as the source of uh, as the source of the vaccine so when this was brought in it immediately well, not immediately, but it very, very quickly saw, in response to it, the rise of the first modern anti-vaccination movements. Like, vaccination is probably one of the most important public health achievements in human history. Like, it is, it's probably not quite on the level of being up there with running water, but it's pretty fucking close. Uh, Unfortunately, like, demi-political opposition to vaccination has existed pretty much as long as vaccination has itself. And it's come from like all sorts of weird positions, uh, mainly in England and the United States, but it has you know spread around the world in various different fun, fun ways. So I found an article on the history of vaccines.org, which understandably has a lot of material on anti-vaccination. And it's called the History of Anti-Vaccination Movements. We'll link it in the show notes. And I'm just going to read out a couple of choice quotes to explain the explain the context that we're sitting in in terms of anti-vaccination stuff in Britain. Uh, widespread smallpox vaccination began in the early 1800s, following Edward Jenner's cowpox experiments in which he showed that he could protect a child from smallpox if he infected him or her with lymph from a cowpox blister. Jenner's ideas were novel for his time, however, and were met with immediate public criticism. The rationale for this criticism varied and included sanitary, religious, scientific and political objections. For some parents, the smallpox vaccination itself induced fear and protest. It included scoring the the flesh on a child's arm and inserting lymph from the blister of a person who had been vaccinated about a week earlier. Some objectors, including the local clergy, believed that the vaccine was unchristian because it came from an animal. For for other anti-vaccinators, their discontent with smallpox vaccine reflected their their general distrust in medicine and in Jenner's idea about disease spread. Suspicious of the vaccine's efficacy, 
some skeptics alleged that smallpox resulted from decaying matter in the atmosphere. This, uh, sorry, I'm just pausing the quote for a minute. This is the miasma theory of contagion, which was like the big one before people figured out what diseases actually fucking are. Um, anyway, back to the quote. Uh, Lastly, many, many people objected to vaccination because they believed that it violated their personal liberty, a tension that worsened as the government developed mandatory vaccination policies. The Vaccination Act of 1853 ordered mandatory vaccination for infants up to three months old, and the Act of 1867 extended this age requirement to 14 years, adding penalties for vaccine refusal. The laws were met with immediate resistance from citizens who demanded the right to control their bodies and those of their children. The Anti-Vaccination League and the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League formed in response to the mandatory laws, and numerous anti-vaccination journals sprung up. The town of Leicester was a particular hotbed of anti-vaccine activity and the site of many anti-vaccine rallies. The local paper described the contents, the, the details of a rally. Quote, an escort was formed, preceded by a banner to escort a young mother and two men, all of whom had resolved to give themselves up to the police and undergo imprisonment in preference to having their children vaccinated. The three were attended by a numerous crowd. Three hearty cheers were given for them, which were renewed with increased vigour as, as they entered the doors of the police cells. Unquote. The Leicester demonstration march of 1885 was one of the most notorious anti-vaccination demonstrations. There, 80 to 100,000 anti-vaccinators led an elaborate march, complete with banners, a child's coffin, and an effigy of Jenner. Yeah, that's the quotation over. I mean, there's so much stuff in here, but like, it's very much a case of like, the more things change, the more they change, the more they stay the same. Like that stuff about um, like cheering people, giving themselves up to the police, that could be like straight lifted from like some of the stupider bits of Extinction Rebellion. The the generalized like populist narrative about about personal liberty is fully fully present in like modern right wing libertarian anti mask stuff. Um, like these crude state-driven top-down policies to do with regulating the population and regulating control over children. Again, that's very much what's going on now. All of this stuff, you know, it's all of this has happened before and it's 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 happening now. And it's 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 now happening in a way that is explicitly fascistic or proto-fascistic because of like the modern role of fascist politics and how that intersects with these ideas and these kinds of political phenomena. Very interesting article. But yeah, the, the 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 big thing apart from apart from that that kind of ties into the anti-vaccination stuff and which borrows all of these things, which has its own rallies with big banners. That like I, I went to one of these to kind of do a little bit of QAnon spotting. I think that was mentioned in the QAnon episode. Is the anti-mask movement, the anti-lockdown movement, who held fairly big protests this autumn in Trafalgar Square. Anti-mask stuff is a subset of anti-vaccination stuff, and it's it's sprung out of this inherent cultural background for anti-vaccination politics within Britain. Anti-vaccination politics has basically always been around in British political culture since vaccines were a thing, and over the kind of like last fifty years, there's been these three kind of big flare-ups of it. Like there's the there's the AIDS HIV crisis, there's the the MMR autism scare, and now there's COVID. So we got we got these anti-mask anti-vaccination rallies and they have these notable properties there's rhetorical crossover regarding masks and like the fears of vaccines like what are the masks hiding about the person wearing them there's this rhetoric of like true identity there's primordial fear and unease at concealing the face at changing the face within the social unit this kind of crosses over to other elements of reactionary and fascist rhetoric like the whole 
turf transphobe fear about the genuine women, men in women's clothing, concealing and contesting the social identity. And it also crosses over with like hijab discourse and, you know, particularly like French and British terror in relation to women wearing the hijab in public. Like what are all of these women in hijabs and burqas gonna gonna be hiding underneath all there? It could just be that they're walking around doing the shopping, but they could be terrorists. That kind of generalized racist fear. So the anti-mask stuff is perfect for the populists. It blends like racism and terror over social veracity with anti-vaccination, which is now super popular. And because of that, you can blend it into a generalized fear of the elites and a distrust of medical professionals. So like the TERFs attack the GICs and orgs like, you know, Gender GP or, or whatever. But the anti-vaccination far right and the and like the, the COVID fear far right elements will attack public health officials like in the States, Dr. Fauci, um, who's basically been a, one of the principal figures in the anti-COVID fight back, who's a, a major employee of the federal government and who's been politically targeted by like Donald Trump and Trump's allies. Fauci, it will be notable to listeners who are familiar with the history of the AIDS pandemic for also being very critical in how that was handled. A lot of campaigners for organizations like ACT UP were very, very critical of Fauci uh, for reasons that are quite complex and I don't think we can get into now. But suffice to say, the guy has a, has a, like a very interesting and mixed history when it comes to public health. Uh, I would encourage people to read more about him because he's a very interesting figure. But yeah, there's these attacks on professionals. They're intended to shift institutional responses, like we've discussed in our previous episode, on like a wide political and cultural level, and they masquerade as resistance against like cold elitist ivory tower scientific authoritarianism. It's similar to like the disparity, like th- this this uh, approach to this like ivory tower authoritarianism has a kind of disparity when you view it on, on like a left to right spectrum. The left wing is still highly skeptical of government responses to COVID, but it doesn't engage in this, or it hasn't engaged in this specifically destructive and oppositional form of praxis because it doesn't want to do that most leftists will agree that covid is real there's it, this is this kind of disparity is similar to disparity in relation to how the right wing and the left wing will view other technocratic political figures like Keir Starmer or Nancy Pelosi we both hate them the far right and the far left both hate these people but it's for very asymmetrical reasons the right doesn't necessarily even notice that left wing hates these people it's too single-minded it's too single-minded on the conspiracy theory it's too focused on like the pandemic concept like the the horrible technocratic liberal with their connections to the, the jews or the other even if they're an arch centrist they'll be viewed as having a communist tinge now of course this podcast is about general reactionaries and turfs and where they converge and where they diverge And in this matter, TERFs are engaging in the public health debate as a wedge issue to a much larger extent than with the other other reactionaries, even considering general anti-vaxxers, even considering the crossover with TERF figures with anti-vaxxers, specifically TERFs of the kind of uh, girl baz tendency that we speak about in other episodes. And of course, they're they're encouraged by the American evangelical funders. One interesting thing to note about the Kira Bell case specifically is that the um, the prosecution was done by an anti-abortion lawyer who ran point, point on it um, for tough aims. Um, the biggest classic example of fascist engagement with cultural war shit is, of course, the book burnings of the, um, apologies for my terrible German pronunciation, the Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft's work, which, of course, was aimed at trans people. 
So yeah, the far right and the anti-vaccination movement are fundamentally single-minded and have this have this tunnel vision focus on on all of these kind of like reactionary things. And one of them is is this kind of the pandemic concept, like the pandemic hoax, which went viral this year. These generally kind of like revolve around fears of oh the vaccine is untested, like they're 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 afraid of the content of the vaccine of like. And this overlaps with general conspiracy theorist circles. It allows it allows the kind of people who will talk about like baby spinal fluid to exist in the in, in the same continuum as people who are just like, oh well, the lockdown is really affecting my small business and my ability to just like extract absurd amounts of rent from all of these brown people. So obviously, I'm anti-lockdown. Therefore, like the the role that this kind of like anti anti technocratic populist narrative takes is that it kind of marries together a lot of these movements. It's very similar to how QAnon has managed to marry together a lot of conspiracy theories. Well, like anti-lockdown stuff has managed to marry together a lot of pseudo anti-authoritarian right-wing populist elements. Like anti-vaccination can now exist in the same realm as like low tax libertarians, in other words. And uh, this means that there's this broad political coalition that certain actors on the far right scene are trying to knit together. And I just think that's bad. I think that's not a good position to be in. It's not, it's not good. And it means that like this distrust of medical professionals becomes not just like a thing that happens politically, but it becomes like such an active political stance that it's, it's fully policy. Yeah. And when you look at the areas of response on a political level, the turf response, the anti-vaxxer response, like the general conspiracyist bigot crank version of what the COVID or brain plague, the general plague policy should be, uh, as we've spoken about is, you know, controlling access to the NHS and social spaces partially as a proxy for these kind of budgetary worries and household economic fears of a battered middle class. They're all, they're all policies of enclosure and, 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 and examples of an area in which medicine must prove itself politically legitimate, both on the, the, the literal vaccine uh, uh, sense and also in terms of uh, trans healthcare. Like the under 18 specifically and, and caused by our duty to have it bumped up to 25 is exterminatory, uh, as we've said. Um, but, but how they've done this is, is very systematic. It, it very speaks to a policy of, of, of gender plague control. So TERFs first went for private healthcare providers for under 18s, such as uh, Gender GP. And then once they'd done that, they moved on to the NHS via Bell. And then immediately afterwards, um, the, the, the media institutions, which we covered in our media episode, went on to harass schools. They then went after journalists who do positive reporting, as we've said. This entire kind of thing is full of contrarianism. Like, you know, anti-vaxxers want lockdown to be over and they don't want any masks, but they don't tie this directly to a specific vision because their vision relies on COVID not existing, which it does. But the people in this general milieu do have specific visions in other areas, for example, the TERFs and, and, and young people's healthcare. There are also exceptions to this from segments of the movement, movements who are into alternative medicines, as we've said, but it's all kind of incoherent because anti-vaxxers are rooted in fundamental recourse to fabulism. All of their responses are about building stories before they're about building politics in the organizational sense. The movement does have a politics, as we've covered, but the politics is reliant on the primacy of fabulism, which is itself emerges as a response to real life politics being too big. Like it's literal small brain energy. They cannot deal with kind of like the holistic effects of COVID on society and on politics. Right, exactly. Like anti-vax and anti-lockdown stuff, um, it, it, a lot of it comes down to this fabulism. A fabulist is one who consistently embellishes false complex tales. Uh, fabulism has a, has a role in, in, in certain kinds of pathological behaviours. 
in this context, it's a political magical realism, basically. Like it's a simplistic view of the modern world that's being that's being enhanced for the consumer's benefit for a partially politically mobilized audience so that they can react to like complex events that the information environment is too fucked to permit them to react correctly to. So yeah, like transphobia also has these elements of fabulism in its world building. Like you get the the woo elements of like radical feminist stuff in the 80s and 90s and the second wave feminist movement and its predilection for like essentialist imagination and essentialist mysticism like you get all the moon goddess shit essentially and kind of like the 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 yoga cults type crossover and that's very much about this about like a political fabulism that helps add a mythos it's about mythos building construction of the myth is essential to a lot of political ideologies like there is a fairly strong argument that politics is the extension of religion by other means the, 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 I, I would agree. And also, I think someone spoke about how we're going to move further and further towards politics being spectacle and entertainment. And for entertainment, you do need coherent narratives, especially simplistic ones. You need script writers, right? This was the great thing about QAnon, because QAnon has infinite script writers. Yes, but the difference between QAnon and, I guess, uh, transphobes in terms of their articulation of of of, of of coherent politics is that QAnon, uh, as we did in our episode, hasn't gone into the UK quite so much as um, evangelical politics has into transphobia. Like it's been imported, but not to the same degree. And I genuinely think that that's why, although individual actors aren't coherent necessarily, the turf vision is far more particular uh, politically articulate and that's why they've had these successes and like their vision is is like conversion therapy state organized child abuse via like medical and psychiatric professions uh with this end game of trans extermination and so like you do still have this contradictory element to it but i think the emergence of the christian right in transphobic politics specifically has given them this coherence it, it, it certainly, it certainly like seems to me that prior to the Christian, like the rich bits of the Christian right from over the pond taking notice of how ripe and fertile for abuse turf politics is, that essentially transphobia, like it was a problem and it was a political problem, but it wasn't as aggressive and it wasn't as well developed on a properly proactive level as it is now. Uh, a lot of it was confined to like the academy and confined to like people just kind of like muttering to each other. And now it's been mobilized, like it's had a real shot in the arm. Yeah, this is like the, the Kirabel case in the, rake, in the wake of the Kirabel case, like five years ago, I remember me and some extremely online trans people joking about how we would end up getting our hormones taken off of us. We didn't even fully believe that joke. No one around us believed that joke. And here we are in 2020. The degree to which um, the evangelical injection, like, you know, the shot in the arm, uh, has, has like enervated turf politics is absolutely ridiculous. And most people did not see this coming, especially cis people. In terms of solidarity and like the solidarity response to actually healing the real plague, which is bigotry, due to like a combination, I think, of a lot of these factors around lockdown, like, and due to the fact that the left is in retreat, like, I really have seen just an utter lack of empathy and care from cis leftists. Like, you know, Jolian should not be the only defender of trans people right now. Yeah, like, we're down, to, we're down, we're down to Jolion, uh, Owen Jones, and, like, occasionally, like, people have, like, a random weirdo friend like me. Yeah, and, 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 well, I would say, I would say, I would say the allies, Jolian and Owen Jones are the allies, and then you do get some, uh, you do get some actual solidarity, which 
does tend to come from you know knowing trans people but because there's not that many of us uh and also not that many of our friends are particularly great that's actually a very small number of people and, and this leads to this leads to the fact that like you know we made a joke earlier about how there was a new bbc like weird turf thing during recording every time something like this happens speaking personally i see trans people on my social media freaking out you know when the kira bell case stuff came out all of this stuff that we comment on Every time one of these news items happens, all of the trans people around you are suicidal and they're freaking out. And what makes it worse is that they look around and cis people don't give a shit. Like every time a news story comes out, my, my social media feed is full of trans people freaking out and all of the cis people on my feed are like, oh, I had lunch today. To be fair, the so kindest ex- you have lunch. So, <laughs> some, so <laughs> cis people be lunching. Um, <laughs> but like... <laughs> The, oh my god, kind- it's fucking brunch. It's fucking brunch now that Trump's it's brunch. gone. That's what they're doing. Trump's gone and they're having brunch and that's why they're not helping out trans people. I've cracked it. <laughs> I've cracked the code. You cracked the code. But yeah, the kindest, the kind, like, this leads to a lot of emotive responses. And, and I myself, um, I'm quite an angry person, um, which may or may not come across on this podcast. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh, we, I, only have, we only have one or two screaming fits per episode. <laughs> but but you know I, I i felt this um kind of emotive reaction to the news and kind of wondering why people don't care and i've tried really to to think about it in a very kind of calm way and i do think that the kindest explanation i can muster for this is just the absolute burnout the death by a thousand cuts to the left um and i think you can compare it uh not directly but but slightly to palestinian solidarity especially in the uk the cause for palestinian solidarity has essentially just collapsed in terms in terms of its importance in the leftist movement. This has been particularly notable in the context of the failure of the anti-war movement and the implosion of left liberalism into like a, a centrist righty midden during the Obama years. And so as a result, the ability of the left and the willpower of leftists in general to go to back for this issue has been really reduced, which is noticeable when you look at the ineffective nature of classic street demos and the maneuvers of the centre-right to completely foreclose on the BDS movement. Like, it's really hard to do Palestinian solidarity at the moment, especially when the leader of the Labour Party is just going absolutely hog-wild in terms of the, 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 sorry, the late game of, like, the anti-Semitism scandal that was levelled at Corbyn's Labour. One thing that I I think is a notable um, similarity between the crushing of the BDS movement and the way that the the way that anti-trans politics works here is that a lot of it is again about foreclosing on civic spaces, about like uh, control over university debates, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, like they're they're very very different political movements, uh, but it's all of these like all of these reactionary forms of politics have a, a, a sort of similar toolbox of tactics that get get applied in different ways. I should say just as a, a final caveat before we close out the episode. All of these, all of these like little bits of rhetoric about like shots in the arm. I swear to fuck, we're doing those accidentally. <laughs> I promise you, we're working from fairly detailed notes for this episode, but we've basically just punned ourselves into oblivion, and it's not intentional. I'm so sorry, listeners. In, in terms of the solidarity response, not to leave it on a kind of negative note. Again, I'm not trying to self-promo. It's just the fact that once I've said things out loud, I'm very bad at remembering them. If you are interested in like actual good responses to what's going on at the moment my the rs21 talk i did is literally only 10 minutes and if you can't be bothered to listen to the whole thing the last five minutes is where i talk about actual plans for actually good things to do so if you are wondering like what the fuck to do about the turfs and how to get stuff done and how to get people to care i think that some of the things i mentioned might be a good challenge 
this, this, this is the problem is that I, I, I like to keep the podcast as my memory bank because we're the only two idiots who do it. But as soon as I start doing other things, I have to be like, oh, yes, and listen to this and listen to that and listen to that. Uh, really, I just need a dictaphone and, and to post it on the Internet. And then no one ever has to listen to me ever again. I think I'll get you one next Christmas, but by that time, we'll probably be about 20 episodes in. <laughs> oh, um, also uh, related to uh, Christmas in our acknowledgements, we would like to thank Molly Noise for our beautiful theme, which, as you may or may not have picked up on, is reminiscent of the X Files, the XX Files. Uh, the the song. Okay, that w- that one was scripted. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, Molly. Molly. Molly named the theme the X Files. Um, she recently did a Christmas kind of noise ballad with Nat Puff, uh, Left at London, which promoed on the the stream that I was on a couple of days ago. I don't know if it's out yet, but it's a really fucking good Christmas song. It bangs. It's got very funny lyrics. It has a noise intermission, and it's a Christmas ballad. So maybe listen to that tomorrow. <sighs> well, not tomorrow because I'll be editing this after Christmas. Ah. Yes, well, listen to it after Christmas for next Christmas. For clarity to the listener, we're recording this on Christmas Eve. (laughs) Yes, we have brain worms. Also, nothing better to do. Because we can't go home to our parents and make them do the washing up after we eat roast potatoes. So yeah, next year, uh, this is going to be our final podcast of the year, in case it wasn't obvious. Um, Next year, we've got like, we still got like a big list of, of planned podcast episodes in the works. We've got a couple we're really excited to do. I think you should be hearing from us sometime kind of like early, mid-January, maybe. Depends on depends on when, when we can record. But yeah, this is definitely going to keep going. Thanks to everyone who's helped us with the podcast and like giving us shout outs. Thanks to Marina Crustacean and Molly Noise and our friend Alaska for doing music for us. Um, we will continue to use all of those tracks. They're all very good. And I guess we'll see you in 2021. It'll be interesting to see how shit that year is. Bye. Bye. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year.